Good morning. I'm Claudia Shambaugh, your host, welcoming you to the July 25th, 2023 edition. My guests are theater people with the Wayward Artist and the South Coast Rep with plays we can all see in the next couple of weeks right here in Orange County. We'll begin with Craig Tyrrell, Artistic Director of the Wayward Artist, to talk about Avenue Q, which runs until this Sunday, July 30th at the Grand Central Arts Center in Santa Ana, and then playwright and actor and singer and everything, Sandra Delgado will talk about her the place she built, her own immersive experience, La Havana, Madrid, and that is running till August 4th at South Coast Reps Outside at Mission San Juan Capistrano. I saw both productions last weekend just so that I could put my stamp of approval on them for you listeners. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. My guest in this first segment is Craig Tyrrell, Artistic Director of the Wayward Artist Productions in Santa Ana. And the longer, the more times you appear, the trimmer your bio gets. It's just the, it's the physics <laughs> of public affairs hosting. Craig's been on, you might be some, one of the record holders. I mean, there's a few that have been on many times. He is a member of, uh, are you still at the Cal State Fullerton University faculty too? I still am. Well, yes, my gosh, all of these hats. Okay, so but the, the, there's going to be a red thread here, folks, in the, the bio here. And he's also an administrative pastor at Irvine United Congregational Church. And the red thread is that theater and the clergy are closely tied since way back in the classics. So Craig's got those covered. And we're fortunate he's making the time for us today to talk about the latest production at The Wayward Artist, Avenue Q. He's come on the show to present each new season of theater work, and we're going to look at Avenue Q, and then we'll fit in what he's arranging for the remainder of the 2023 season and the new 23-24 season starting this fall. Craig comes to us today, I believe, maybe Fullerton, maybe Santa Ana, maybe Irvine, somewhere in Orange County. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Craig Tyrrell. Oh, thank you, Claudia. You know you're one of my favorite people, and uh, I'm coming from the church today. From Okay, and that's right there. All right, see, this is where the many titled people, they, they could be in any town here. So, well, thank you, and I just zeroing laser-like here on Avenue Q, the whole package delivered. We can start with the casting, and that's people, they've got to sing, they've got to act, they've got to manipulate puppets. How did you... Sort and and, the, and they're all doing that. These characters they're sorting out early adulthood, but we'll talk about that universality in a second. But let's talk about how you can get them to be able to do all of those things, and how you audition people to do all that, or do you have to sort of do some quick uh, training on some of those other um, maybe lesser performed aspects of of drama? Well, first of all, um, it was nice to be in the audience the same night you were there. It was so great to catch up with you. Thank now, you. Now, in terms of your question, 
Yeah, well, this 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 show uh, requires a choreographer to teach the dance. Uh, it requires a, a puppet master, somebody trained in the use of puppets to teach the cast how to use them, how to make them come alive, how to make them an extension of the actor's own instrument. And uh, at the auditions and the callbacks, we had the puppets already, and so it was an added element typical audition but this time you got to play with puppets as well and it works it works i mean they, it works, it works. Yeah. and and i i finally i realized the puppets are the ones that are in the all black costumes and that that's just to blend in the the two figures easily and the the non-puppet people are wearing their overalls their uh there. Oh, but oh, but I've got. There's a hussy. There's a that she. There's a word. I'm not sure I can use <laughs> yeah. it in the non-safe harbor or in yeah. in unsafe harbor. I can use that word. Um, the the S word with for girls. But that's the way you meld all of those talents. That was just pretty amazing. And so back to so the universality because we're gonna the play that I talk about in the second segment is also amazingly universal. So what I love, love, love is how very. Very persuasively, the whole Avenue Q calls out all, a un- everybody's shortcomings, uh, the righteous and the self-righteous. It's, uh, it's remarkably universal, and, it, and it's effective in the way it gets that across. Is right, that what, why for, you- and it's 20 years old. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? I, I still think it's so quite timely, too. I agree with you. You know, it, it's a irreverent for sure. I mean, for anybody out there that's never seen Avenue Q, think adult rated R Sesame Street. But it's in its irreverence, it finds so much heart, so much universality, and so much, uh, I think, something to teach all of us, even though it's a 20 year old musical. And the, I would say the irreverence is not at all gratuitous, it's very uplifting. I think so too. All, you know, it's not—it's not everyone's cup of taste, but uh, but it's definitely my taste and up my line. Um, you know, I think a little, a little irreverence. It just in a world where everybody's taking themselves, oh my gosh, way too seriously. This is the kind of musical uh, with something to say. Well, that's all of us in the theater. We all do that. We're all—all all the patrons. We all take ourselves too seriously. I do all the time. <laughs> and it caught me all the time. And so there's a few adult raid things. So I couldn't play. I think I found the one track that I could play as a pairing for the end of this interview segment. But some of them are just a little. But it's not, as I said, it's not gratuitous. It, it all fits in there. So do you want to, um, the, the rhythm and the pace, it really works. It just flows through there. There is an intermission, folks, and you get right back in there. Do you want to talk about the extent to which... You said it's a 20-year-old play, but there were a few tweaks in the play and and talk about the sort of what we're surrounded in in that set. Okay, so, you know, our space is uh, a small, intimate, 73-seat thrust space. So you are right there with the actors and with the puppets and fully engaged in the story. So scenic design is is a little minimal and uh, sort of traditionally has this kind of New York Sesame Street vibe, if you will, and, and they've they've minimized it slightly and almost given it a, you know, it could be any metropolitan city anywhere, which I think is kind of cool. We've taken off all the curtains around our walls, and they've created graffiti arts um, with lots of inside jokes and lots of just relevant graffiti to the show. 
Um, so they've personalized it in a way that I think is quite wonderful. And then there's a video design element, which they've expanded upon. The, the script does have videos, but they've, they've taken it up a notch and really, I think, enhanced the story time uh, with the video content, which is, it's fun, it's playful, it's, it's a kind of schoolhouse rocks meets the better you know, if you remember. Again, I'm a kid of the 80s, so the more you know, little... Uh, Sesame teaching moments, um, and uh, but I agree with you. It, it's tight. The, the, I've uh, I've said this for a long time that Avenue Q is in my top three shows of kind of all time favorite musicals, and uh, um, it's just great number after great number after great number. It's tight. It's quick, and the story is as clear as day, and it just leaves audiences. It's one of those you walk out, you'll be humming the tunes. Uh, well into the next week. I've been humming them for months now. And to the credit of the, we'll call it for lack of a better word in this morning show here, at, at the, to its speak to the integrity of the piece, I was not sure because of what I had seen. I, it was a, a documentary about Ukraine the night before. And I, thought, I don't know. Do I really want to put Avenue Q on top of that documentary? I really wasn't sure I could do it, but I but I signed on. I knew I this was the way that I was going to prepare for today, but it it was fine. You can put this play on top of anything, ladies and gentlemen. And so, and Craig, I'm going to go back to, if you thought this was spare, I want to see what your elaborate set is. I thought it was just loaded with the, it was, you said there's the graffiti, it's chalked up there, and I'm not sure if people are invited to um, add to that. I, I just smudged a little, one little tiny piece to see if it was real chalk, and it was. But I didn't change, <laughs> I didn't change the message there, but just, just a little smudge. And then as the the video gives us, it sets us in San Diana. We can recognize some of those places and some of them very close to where Wayward Artists is performed. So that that was really cool. And I'm going to say one more thing. This is if, if I was like famous, I'd be added for this next comment. What I really liked also about Avenue Q, there was not one whiff of Andrew Lloyd Webber anywhere. No, that's true. That's true. I was so grateful. <laughs> All right, at me, folks. When I get famous, you can at me for that one. You can start. You're going to get fan mail on that one. Uh, that's so. We'll, we'll see. But I, when plays, musicals continue to sound more and more like Andrew Lloyd Webber. That homogenization trend is like, oh, please. Maybe that's yeah. what twenty years older gets you as you're ahead of that steamrolling effect there. So, if you've just joined us. My guest is Craig Tyrrell, Artistic Director of The Wayward Artist, bringing the latest production there, Avenue Q. Lyrics are by Jeff Marks, Robert Lopez. The book is by Jeff Witty, and he is witty. This current production is directed by Wynne Moreno, musical direction by Andrea Deck, and it's choreographed by Sarah Ripper. So this is running until the, let's see, it's Friday. July 30th is the last day, so please. Sunday. Or su- Sunday, Ju- this yeah, Sunday, we've got July four 30. performances left, and last weekend was sold out. First opening weekend was very close to sold out, so get your tickets now. Come see it. Okay, okay, good. Well, shall we give you a chance, Craig, to talk about the rest of the season? Like the wayward reads, it's called the queer couch. Is that for everybody too? It it, it is. So I I first saw this play at a staged reading at uh, at Chance Theater. Um, it's by VJ. Kendall and uh, Brooke Aston Harper, who's been on your show before, she had directed it at the Chance uh, in, in the staged reading. 
Um, it's just a by lovely queer playwright. It's it, it's a it's a BIPOC play story about kind of going back to high school and kind of trying to fix the wrongs. Um, so uh, we talked to the playwright and asked if we could give it a, a fuller production. So Brooke has started rehearsals for that this week, actually. And then we just auditioned Yellowface. Callbacks are tomorrow night for Yellowface, which is David Henry Wong. Um, that'll open in September. And then I will be directing a, uh, a trans play called Rotterdam in November. And, we'll, uh, and then to wrap up our season is uh, Families with Young People show called Pirates versus Leprechauns um, for younger theater, for young audiences. And I can't believe season six is over halfway there and we're in the middle of just uh, play selection for season seven. Season seven. Wow, I can't believe it. So what is the theme for the new fall Is that it, that you have? We don't know yet. We don't yet. I gave, um, you know, we, we pick a season for our resident artists. We, we, we want everybody that has an interest or a passion in doing something uh, to put, you know, to be part of that process. And the parameters that I set for this year, I know I, know I want to do a play that features uh, seniors. Uh, we did a little one-act festival back in January, and I did this lovely t- three-person plays for uh, World War II uh, veterans, and so I had actors in their 60s and 70s, and it was just a delight. And I I said, I want to do a play that features seniors because they were so thrilled to be working in the space and reminded me that the opportunity um, is just not what it is for others. Um, uh, Wait, before before you go on, I want to stay on that topic. So what I like about that intention, Craig Tyrrell, is that this is one instance where you're going to make sure seniors are seen. Yes. And heard. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's part of our, just the fabric of our company is we made, we really made a commitment to equity, diversity, and inclusion. We call it idea. Um, but uh, that in all our programming, in our practices, we're going to be conscientious and, and, and intentional about making sure that our space is open to everybody and that we're producing work for everybody and uh, that we're cognizant of those that are either marginalized or disenfranchised. So that's why so, you know, so much of our work is LGBTQ-focused, BIPOC-focused, accessibility-focused, women-focused, and now seniors. So back to and your seniors. Th- yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. yeah. I'm I'm here to keep reminding people that there's a it's an earlier age than you all think that when we become invisible as seniors, and it's uh, it's not uh, it's not pleasant because we have so much going on, you know. <laughs> so uh, back to the theme you were talking about so before. So we really we, we know that we we know we're going to do a BIPOC play. Okay, um, and. Uh, we had a wonderful collaboration with uh, Orange County Playwrights Alliance earlier in the year. So we like to do a, a piece of new work every year. Um, but that collaboration went so well, we're looking now to do that again in 2024 in terms of new work. So we've got these parameters, and we'll see if we cobble together a theme out of that. But if not, you know, it's 
we'll be true to kind of our brand at Wayward. A little edgy, not you know, not afraid to push the envelope, not afraid to put a mirror up to somebody, and ultimately telling stories that we think is transformational that has an impact on the human conversation. And you get that done in seventy three seats. Yeah, and yeah. four sides. Well, I, you know, I, I tell you, I was sitting there Saturday night when you were there, Claudia, and you know, I, I've had big, big changes in the last year. You know. Yeah, well, moving into this administrative position, yeah. but then I was sitting in the audience going, "Dang it, we just—I love what we have done in that little small space for seven years." You know, and, and the, I'm quite proud of. Yes, indeed, you should be. I can attest to with coming back for for more. Quite frankly, hungry and coming back for more. Well, let's let you close with these these tender roles of the theater and clergy that they're yeah. they they overlap and i i'm sure you know which hat which vest you're wearing so uh, how talk about those two roles as they keep coming together and they collide and they come out beautifully okay i i 100 agree with you i'll try to make it super quick i will say early on in my early 20s when i was an undergrad and 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 i went to grad school in my early 20s I thought I was going to be in religious life. I, I went for a brief time in sort of uh, the Catholic Augustinian friar route, but then I realized that wasn't for me. And uh, and then I spent my rest of my twenties and my thirties and the forties in kind of restaurant management. But I discovered acting really late in life, kind of in my thirties. And I went back to grad school again in my forties to get an MFA in acting. And I've been in theater ever since uh, I turned forty. And um, and in a very strange way, I, it feels like life is coming back first full circle to what I thought was in call earlier in my life. Um, and I will say, being an actor in performance and the theater background, I just think I had to take that journey because you do when you you know preaching and performance, um, worship and liturgy. It is. It has performative elements to it, and my background in theater really only serves that. And uh, so, I just feel. I just feel. I kind of, in my continuing process of self-discovery and self-creation, that you know, the theater background needed to come where it came, so that now I'm in this. I think last career path in my life, you know, so, but you never know that it surprised me, Claudia. I, I didn't think at 50, um, there was going to be another career change. Cause I really do love teaching and I love theater and I love my time at Cal state Fullerton. Uh, but you know, things surprise you. And I was surprised again at 50 and I was quite grateful for that. So leap of faith. bringing that observation to what you're going to bring in the new season a play about seniors. Let's think of that as so. Seniors are human circles. There, there's a there's a, a a point and a trajectory and a completion of many life experiences. And anybody younger than a senior is an arc, but not a completed circle. So this yeah. is why to pay attention. Seniors are carrying around a lot of and people fill in the blank <laughs> that I can't use on this show. So um, yeah. that's well well done. And so directing, creating and pastoring and it all you can do that all on 
on a weekend, on a weekday over there at (laughs) Irvine United. So, well, Craig, I thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader today, and I look forward always to the very next play. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for your time. You're welcome, Claudia. There's a fine, fine line. We'll be right back with Sandra Delgado. Welcome back to the show. My next guest, it's such a pleasure, is Sandra Delgado, a Colombian-American writer, actor, singer, and producer, also known as a triple threat out of Chicago, all the distinctions of which figure into the play, her play, for which she's best known, until another one surpasses this gem. It's La Habana Madrid, the topic for this program. Her play now being performed at the Mission San Juan Capistrano reimagines the popular 1960s Latino Caribbean nightclub of the same name. It's at South Coast Reps Outside. It's their third annual. This play won acclaim at Steppenwolf and Goodman Theater and Teatro Vista and Collaboration. This was recognized as one of the best plays by New City Chicago in 2017, Time Out Chicago, Time Out Audience Award for Best New Work, and Alliance of Latinx Theater Artists Award for Best Production. Sandra is quite the veteran of the stage. In addition to her work at Artistic Homes, Teatro Vista, and Collaboration, she has performed across Chicago, including we've talked about, mentioned the Goodman Theater, Looking Glass Theater, Victory Gardens, and About Face. Recent highlights include her titular role in La Havana, Madrid, La Ruta at Steppenwolf, and starring off-Broadway in the public theater's production of Oedipus El Rey as Yocasta. Her latest projects include The Sandra Delgado Experience, a fusion of music and storytelling, and her new musical coming up. I want to see this so badly. The Boys and the Nuns. <laughs> she is a United States Artist Fellow with service on the board of the Chicago Public Library, City of Chicago's Arts Council Fellow in Literature, a recipient of the Three Arts Award, the Joyce Award, the Theater Communications Group, Fox Foundation Resident Actor Fellowship in the Extraordinary Potential category, and Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events grantee and other grantees. I'm going to just leave it that sometimes I put people on the spot and say, what is your favorite award? And sometimes it's like me saying, what's your favorite child? So I'm just going to list those so people can really flesh out someone new to us in Southern California. She is one of 20 women of Chicago arts and culture honored in Carrie James Marshall's mural Rush more, two words, folks, on the facade of the Chicago Cultural Center. She comes to us today from somewhere in Orange, Southern Orange County. Welcome <laughs> to Ask a Leader, Sandra Delgado. Oh, Claudia, thank you so much for that warm introduction. I'm like, I'm grinning right now. <laughs> well, I'm just trying to match your grant from the glow I'm still feeling from Sunday evening. It's South Coast Repertory's third season outdoors. La Havana Madrid is an immersive play with action, music, and I'm putting this in uppercase for those who want to sneak a peek at my script, and stories. It's making its West Coast debut at the mission, and I'll endeavor to probe without spoiling much of anything for listeners. So would you please, Sandra, talk to us about your original intent 
and how further probing of your loved ones involved evolved into this multidimensional oral history of a music-laden play. You had like, yes. and I'm sure you had a hundred times more material than would fit in this show. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, hello, Orange County. <laughs> hello, California. I'm so happy to be here, first of all. It's been an amazing few weeks. Um, you know, when I first started, uh, when I first started La Vana Madrid, it really was going to be a play about my parents, not called La Vana Madrid. It was just going to be a play inspired by my parents um, who came from Colombia in the 60s. To Chicago, and as I was having early conversations with them about their early days in Chicago, my father told me about this nightclub, La Habana Madrid, that they used to go to in the neighborhood that I, I grew up in, like maybe like a mile west of La Habana Madrid, and when my father told me that there was a Latine nightclub in that area, my mind was kind of blown because to my memory, that had never been a Latino neighborhood. It just wasn't, you know, in the, by the time I came around in like the late, in the seventies, eighties, like it just, it just wasn't there. So I was shocked to know that there had been a Latino presence in that area. And it was in that moment that he told me about the club, that the project changed from like, Oh, I'm going to write a story about my parents to I'm really interested in finding out more about this club. The, 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 club is the, the club is the play, and wouldn't it be fun to have this immersive experience where the audience isn't walking into a theater, they're actually walking into the nightclub. And I grew up singing all my life, and I'd always had this fantasy to sing with the salsa band. And so I was like, oh, this will be cool. I'll like write myself into it, and I can sing with the band. And I thought it was going to be just like this really like fun, different thing. And then when I started researching the area, the plays I do are history plays. I'm obsessed with history, especially history that isn't as well known, that I feel deserves a wider recognition. And I quickly found out how little of the Latine experience in Chicago, especially Caribbean Latine, you know, um, the characters that you'll meet are Cuban and Colombian and Puerto Rican, how little of that history is actually documented, beginning with the club. If you Google that name now, you'll find out a bunch of stuff about the show, but there's really not anything about the club. And so it was in that moment when I started researching that the play actually took on a deeper meaning for me where I was like, oh, this is, I'm exhuming history that has been lost. You know, this is this is now a completely different thing. And it's still going to be super fun. <laughs> it's still going to be super fun. It's still going to be immersive. We're still going to have the live band. But it's going to have a deeper layer to it as well, where, where we're going to be introduced to history that you might not know in, in a super entertaining and hopefully thought-provoking way that also makes you walk out of there being like, what are the histories that I don't know that maybe are a little closer to me too? You know, let me ask my loved ones about their lives. Yes, and Andy Knight, who's with the South Coast Rep in a sort of like a pre-play talk that he gave, and he said that, and this, I'm not going to quite get every every way, exact every word together, but the central idea was, he said, in this place, specificity is its universality. So it's what yeah. is going on in there is explaining a lot el elsewhere. And and as I watched this, pl uh, this play, because it's not a musical, it's a play right. with music. We'll keep yeah. making sure that distinction is very clear. And I, as I watched it, I thought, well, you know, this 
transfers very well. You, there's all sorts of references to Chicago, but it, it moves. And I was wondering when I saw Michael Shion's uh, vase earlier this year that I wasn't sure if that was going to, it, its L.A. references were going to move around the country. And I think they will because yours moved around neatly with us there in Southern, here in Southern California. So that there is a tribute. So, And it is such a subversive teaching tool. Starting with, and this one, I, I, I was sort of taking notes. I couldn't, you know, help myself. But with the, it was the mama auntie talking to her Peter Pan daughter. And so, folks, everybody finds out, okay, what is the Peter Pan? Because I, I have a neighbor who is yeah. a Peter Pan. He's an adult wow. now. There, mm-hmm. And and so, but the, the, the phone call from mama auntie to the, the daughter in, either she's in Miami or the call is taking place when she's on to Chicago. But the, the mama says, Get used to the change. And everybody mm. gets to let that theme sink in because that's what's going on. That's the through line of La Habana, Madrid. Yeah. Yeah, that is one of them. That is one of them. Um, I, I just I want to give you like a little insider information oh. with what you were talking about before about, you know, how does a piece that's so specific, how is it received in other places? And like a little behind the scenes thing that happened was that I had a different ending originally, one that actually it was a, a, a version of what you saw. But after that, I then got hyper local to Orange County and actually wrote another like little like coda talking about this land and it was so interesting because when you know we did a a run for for you know the scr staff and the producers and stuff and folks were like you know what i don't think you need it i don't think you need it because we are we are we're already making connections for ourselves with our life our own lives with what we're seeing and to bring it actually to orange county kind of like takes the magic away. We're like, we wanted to stay in Chicago in Havana, Madrid. And I thought that was so interesting. And, and something I wouldn't have been able to predict or know unless I had written that ending and shared it with people. And it's like, you really, like you said, you know, you really will find resonance for you, whether you are Latino or not, whether you are an immigrant, first generation, second generation, or your family has been here for generations and generations or generations. Like, we're all looking to belong, right? We're all looking for home. Well, I'm I'm thinking I'll flip what you changed in the the for the coda. I'm going to flip it and look at how it starts and how it's a circle completed with the production that we all see is mm-hmm. that you start with a multi it's I've never heard one like this. You start with a multi-layered land acknowledgement and you close the circle it was genius sandra well oh, done bien hecho thank you so you have in that way the coda is the start and the end and oh yes so mm-hmm. so you did do it for those of you who've just joined us on ask a leader my guest is playwright actor and singer sandra delgado talking about her production La Havana, Madrid, now being performed at Mission San Juan Campestrano and South Coast Reps outside SCR. It's directed by Cheryl Lynn Bruce, and the shows continue through August 4th. Well, there's two parts, and you said by, by the 70s it had vanished, this this club. But there's there's two parts. It's very interesting, 1961 and mm-hmm. 1966. And I, yeah. with the, my fellow patron, I was asking, so he, he said, I felt so different. Yeah, well, that was the point. We were supposed to feel different about 
what the setting was in 61 and 1966. It was a huge pivot. So talk about selecting those years, a, a little of that intention. Yeah, so so the actual nightclub, you know, even though it, it became this important hub for Caribbean Latinos on the north side of Chicago, um, and had people like Celia Cruz and Tito Puente play there, it, it its life was less than eight years, you know. Um, it was around from like 1961 to about 1969, and then afterwards it became a very influential folk club called The Quiet Night, and Jimi Hendrix played there, and Bob Dylan played there. It's, it's, it's a very blessed place. And then it was like this big punk club, and now, if you can believe it, it's a hair salon. <laughs> and a gym, right? That's what... It's so bizarre. And... But um, nine, I, I picked 19, 1961 because that's that's what I found as like when the... Um, the Peter Pan kids the, came? The, yes, when the Peter Pans came. And I just thought it would be so interesting. And the original owner of the club, who I could not find out, I couldn't find anything about him or how the club started or anything like that until after we produced the, the very first production of the show in 2017, I had, a, you know, there was a feature in one of the local Chicago newspapers, and because of that, the daughter of the original owner, his name was Huito Aloma, and he was a famous baseball player from Cuba who played for the White Sox. His daughter, who still lives in the Chicagoland area, reached out to me via Facebook, actually, and was like, my father opened the club, and then she was able to share all this amazing information with me. But to answer your question, yeah, 1961, I just thought for me to open the show with a child, you know, I just feel like that's just a way in for everyone, you know, where, where you are from, whatever your history is to like, to see the world through the eyes of a child. And also like, also the Peter Pan, um, for folks who don't know, 14,000 children were sent unaccompanied by their parents. Unaccompanied minors right there, folks. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 14,000 children were sent to the United States when, when Castro uh, came to power because they were scared, and um, a lot of those children were actually never reunited with their parents. And uh, and I just thought it was a, a history worth sharing. And um, and then 1966, it's just like this: things are really across the United States are really starting to bubble up politically. And then music-wise, you know, the the show also is taking you through a musical journey. You know, if you're looking at the late 50s, early 60s. Music-wise, in the United States, you're still seeing a lot of pure sounds from Cuba, pure sounds, traditional rhythms from Puerto Rico and Colombia, you know, like the mambo or the cumbia or the cha-cha. But by the mid-1960s into the late 1960s, those sounds are now starting to um, merge with big band sounds in the United States. And what a lot of people don't realize is that salsa music is actually a U.S. born creation, huh. which I think is just so beautiful how music, you know, I'm a theater artist, but I really do believe that music is a great connector, which is why I, a lot of my works have music in them. And it doesn't know any borders. You know, music knows no borders. It doesn't know boundaries. It's just about the mix you know, and, uh, and evolution. And I just think that's so beautiful. So, so that's when at the mid to late sixties, there's just so much, it's just such a rich part of our history. And the, the 
your original music, the original music and the arranging by Christian Amigo really is doing an amazing kind of service. It's, when you hear the cumbia, you know somebody from Colombia, that's you and other, there are uh, other Puerto Rican music. Those genres are sort of telling us who the character is or what's the story that's unfolding before us. So it's, it's doing a lot of really interesting things. And if you want to talk about the actors there, uh, and including your role, the titular role, it's very special and very multidimensional. They're the ones that are, they're fleshing out the place. Their, their, their stories tell us what a setting it was, the club. Yes, yes. I mean, speaking about the music, so the music is a mix of some iconic, iconic uh, Latin American songs, you mm. know, like Sabor a Mi, um, like La Rebelión, you know, very songs that really carry a lot of meaning and emotion for, um, I'm not even going to say a certain generation of people. Like for me, it's like songs that remind me of my parents or like family parties. For other people, it will be like, oh, no, th these are the songs I grew up with or, you know, someone younger than me. Oh, these are my grandparents' songs. Um, and then, you know, I'd always wanted more original music in the show. And uh, this time around with, with the South Coast Rep production, I had an opportunity to team up with a composer, Christian, Christian Amigo, to work on some original music. And him and I um, wrote a couple boleros together. <sighs> and then he wrote a bunch of the music that uh, underscores some of the stories. And then we took those ideas from Christian, and the band also was, was generating new arrangements that were riffs off of Christian's music, because the band is not like, like you said, this is not a musical, this is a play with music, and the band, they are real salsa musicians. These are, these are not guys who are, who are musical theater musicians. These are like, these are master salsa musicians, and they all have this language that I'm still trying to understand. Like, oh, let's do a C7. Like, they all know a C7 is this, like, riff that you do. And then they're, they're just, like, improvising to a certain extent. Now we've set stuff, but it's also been so incredible to watch their process because they are just. <laughs> they're incredible. They're so incredible. And they are they are not just playing notes. They are they are a part of a performance and I'm yes. not folks, I am not spoiling a darn thing here is you have a trombone cadenza. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Oh my goodness. It's a girl too doing it. I loved it. So um yeah. that's, so it's uh, do you want to talk about your very important role it's a it's all in a it's kind of a, a the the greek the i can't the um in the greek there's those three off to the side the uh, the yeah, norns like the chorus the the chorus but there's mm -hmm. much more uh, you're playing an, a very interesting role and you wrote that i did and and it wasn't you know i'm trying to think back to the original draft like the the character the character originally was really only functioning on one level. She was the singer of the club, you know? And I guess a couple, well, a few things happened. Mm -hmm. um, all, a few things happened that led me to really keep exploring the character of La Habana Madrid. And she resulted in being, um, you know, working on this other layer where she is the conjurer, really. She's the one that allows the time and the space travel. She's the one that is the one that kind of activates these people that go to the club to share their stories, you know, she's the one um, talking to the band and she's the one that knows what each character needs music wise 
to find themselves. And, um, and that happened in a few different, and, and also she has a lot in common with a lot of the Orisha goddesses. So Orisha, the Orishas are um, African gods and goddesses, and from the Yoruba tradition that when folks in, in, in Africa were enslaved and brought over, a lot of people also don't know that slavery, there were more enslaved Africans that were brought over to Central and South America than all of North America. So the Latin American countries also have uh, a horrible history of slavery. But, you know, so these folks brought over their tradition, the Yoruba tradition that lives on today and has influenced so much in Latin America. And Sherilyn Bruce, my director, who's brilliant, you know, the first time she read the script, she was like, you have so much. And so there are these two water goddesses, um, Yemaya and Oshun. And she said, there's so much water imagery here. Were you thinking about Yemaya and Oshun? Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, I wasn't consciously, but I see that now. And and then I had another friend who was like, you need to write some original music for this, and which scared me at the time because uh, I'd never done that. But that, that also like um, bled into this whole idea of, of this, you know, spiritual character. And then I had a writing retreat that I went to that was on Lake Michigan. And for those of you who don't know, Lake Michigan really looks like the ocean. I mean, it just goes on forever. So here I was on the water and I just got really inspired. And that's when the character of La Habana Madrid leapt forward in this completely, completely new way. And selfishly, it's amazing for me night after night to be able to watch the stories come to life. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I love watching them every night. I love being with the band. And I love watching the audience, like to see smiles on people's faces, to see them sing along, to see them cry, to see them nod in acknowledgement. Like it just feeds me so much every night. It makes me so happy to do the show for people every night and i love talking to folks afterwards too and And people love sharing things afterwards it really does inspire people i've had um you know we've been running for a couple of weeks and i've had several people come up to me afterwards to say i haven't written in a while but i'm going to start writing again or or saying i've never thought about writing but i think i want to write something you know that that's that's one of the main i mean it's just it's incredible so we have many more topics. I'm going to not try to be disrespectful and give too short shrift, <laughs> but Cheryl Lynn Bruce, fellow Chicagoan of yours, is a pretty big deal director with a, an extensive acting background too. So it, it, I'm, you've, you've given a nod to her, her collaboration and framing and that kind of thing. So I, I, that I want people to appreciate just what an A-list director that you've had she an is. opportunity to collaborate. That I, I wanted to talk about meeting spaces. And in preparation mm. for this, I thought I'd give a little dial up to whoever was going to pick up the phone, phone at El Floridita. It's a salsa, a Cuban dinner dance club in Hollywood. And I, I first went there in about uh, like the late 1990s. It's 36 mm-hmm. years old now. They're still running, 36 years. And I wanted, when I first went there, Sandra, it, and this is to the meeting place, what the place does. It mm. reminded me in the late 90s of, it was the salsa equivalent of the bowling league. And I thought this, and because everybody came in a big group 
and they changed partners and they danced all night. There's there's yeah. a bar, there's a, a restaurant, a kitchen, but they're there. And the other part about that meeting place, which I'm sure was what La Habana Madrid was about, is the Cuban music performers are high quality album. It's a very very competitive genre internationally. So there's high quality music at this bowling salsa equivalent of a bowling league there. And so I wanted you to have a chance to talk about the meaning of a of of meeting places and what's that saying when they're vanishing on us like this? That it's persistent at Floridita. People were lining up. They couldn't wait for it to reopen after the pandemic. But talk about the meeting place for us. Yes, wow. So I I'm I'm going to get really personal here. Uh you know, my parents came to the United States from Colombia in, you know, the mid 1960s and you know, like one of the characters in the play and this isn't giving away anything, you nope. know, he talks about like how in his country in Puerto Rico his family was a respected family. His father was a respected politician. But when they got to Chicago, because of the way they looked, because of the way they sounded, they were now forced to live in a transient hotel. Um, with my parents, they came from Colombia, educated, and they ended up working in factories all their lives. Um, but on the weekend, they could get dressed up. You know, they could go listen to music. They could speak Spanish all night long. They would meet new friends. They would be with family. They would dance. They would let go of whatever was worrying them outside. Everything just disappeared. It was a place where these, where these folks, a meeting places where you can truly be yourself and let go and be free. And um, with La Habana Madrid, because the neighborhood started changing so much, it really, you know, the all the Latinos, and there were actually black families in that area too, the black and brown families, because of gentrification and, you know, just, you know, money. <laughs> they were all forced west, and this place disappeared. And, and these places are important. They're important now. They will always be important. Places where people can go and be themselves and feel free. And to, you know, and, and music is such a big part of that. To be able to just let go, you know? Be. Be fully. Be fully. Be Not fully be a caricature. And be present. And, you know, and of course people at, at La Habana Madrid, they met there, they fell in love, you know, all of that happened too. But I, I, I think even more than anything, it's just a place where you could go to feel really great about yourself and, and be with, you know, be free. So when we talked about, uh, gave a nod to the immersive experience, this mm -hmm. is at the San Juan Capistrano mission in the sort of the larger kind of open space inside of the mission. And mm -hmm. everything about the production, well, except for the really, really hardscape, but everything had to be brought in. So did you have a, a, a role or did your, did I, I mean, it was such an ambitious project to put in all the accoutrements of an immersive jazz club setting. Yeah, I mean, South Coast Rep is an incredible, incredible theater. I mean, it's really a gem nationally. And they, you know, we worked with our set designer, our sound designer, and our lighting designer. 
they have been with the space since the beginning. They helped design that space three summers ago. So they wow. really know what they're doing. I mean, Lonnie, the lighting designer at this point, he could tell you if you're like, what's the light like at 737? He can tell you what's the light like at 805? He knows. I mean, he is a master and it's just so cool how the club and the energy transforms once the sun goes down. And I think it really feeds the storytelling in this really unexpected and magical way. And, you know, Efren, the set designer, you know, he really had so much fun. He's a master researcher and just just digging into the history of Chicago and took a lot of inspiration from, from Cuba and like the Trocadero Club to bring something that, yes, spoke to Chicago, but also spoke to the actual setting that we were in, the mission. Um, and I think he did such a beautiful job. The big thing that we weren't able to do that was a big part of uh, past productions and, and possibly future productions is the use of projections to really fill in some of the storytelling. But the really wonderful discovery that we made was that it actually had us made us realize that we actually needed more music in the play. So there's a lot more underscoring than in past productions to kind of um, give emphasis and oomph in areas that the projections that the video used to do. And I think that's been that's I think all that new music we discovered will always be a part of the play. Well, I think the the positioning, the three dimensional, all the many locations of the actors that provides what maybe a projection. What I think it was, uh, I wouldn't touch that. I, like you had, you knew what you were doing with that and moving those actors all about on the stage, stage left, stage right, and then in the front and uh, and through. They walk through some of the, the sections in the audience. So Yes, I, that's all Cheryl. That is all Cheryl, wow. our director. Two and a force. pretty incredible. Well, I want to congratulate you on a fabulous, fabulous program, and thank you for your time with us today, Sandra Delgado. Thank you so much. I just want to say one final thing. If you do join us at La Habana Madrid, we're only there through August 4th, and you do have the opportunity to dance. And I encourage everyone, even if you don't know salsa music, even if you've never danced to it before, it really is about just letting go and having fun. So when the time comes to dance, I encourage you to dance, even if you don't know the moves. That was a question I was going to ask, and you got you covered that. Is when does the patron get the permission to first begin dancing? So that that's was given there. Though, thank you so much. Sandra Delgado is the playwright of La Habana, Madrid, playing at the South Coast Reps San Juan Capistrano Mission now until August fourth. It's at seven thirty the each evening. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Talk with you next week. We've got some uh, labor topics coming on. Music